0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is John Lepley and I am one of the hosts. And today I am very excited to talk with Jack Metzger, the author of Bridging the Divide, Working Class Culture in a Middle Class Society, which was published by the ILR Press, an imprint of Cornell University Press in 2021. Jack, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. Good to talk to you, John.
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm glad we could finally connect. And to start with, Jack, can you can you tell us about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, and uh, some of the work you've done over the years? Because I, you know, on one hand, that's just something that happens with all the interviews here, but I think it's also uh, very relevant to uh, the subject matter of your book.
1: Yeah, I, I grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, in a steelworker family with a lot of steelworker uncles and neighbors and in a steel town, uh, was a steel town then, um, went to school in a variety of different places, got my doctorate at, from Northwestern University, which I hated going to, because <laughs> it's a really upper class place. Um and then taught for 30 years at uh, in an adult education program at Roosevelt University in Chicago. Uh, retired from there in 2016, I think it was. Um, and, uh, and along the way, I was an editor of uh, Labor Research Review, which during the 80s, during the period around concessions and plan closings, uh, the Midwest Center for Labor Research was very active in opposing both concessions and uh, plant closings. Uh, we had various kind of complicated relations with the, the leadership of the steelworkers at that time, uh-huh. uh, but we put out, I think, maybe fourteen issues of Labor Research Review that really pioneered a lot of the stuff that people take for granted today, not mm-hmm. that we came up with it, but we were reporting what uh, what various uh, unions were doing, local
0: unions were doing around the country. Mm-hmm. So Jack, at uh, Roosevelt University, what were some of the, the subjects that you taught over the years? Well,
1: I would, um, my main job, I was a general uh, uh, educator, that is, I taught Writing, I taught a, my main course was a senior thesis that bachelor's undergraduate students had to write. Uh, I taught a humanities seminar, social sciences seminar. Uh, so it was very, very general. And all adults, people had to be over 25 to be in my classes, class. And uh, so we had a wide range of uh, mm-hmm. uh, ages, mixed race, about half black, half white. Uh, right in downtown Chicago, commuter school. Um, most people worked during the day and came to s- school at night. Um, and then I also got involved at Roosevelt at first, and then a variety of places in labor education, um, um, mostly on big picture stuff, economics, politics, uh, some labor management stuff. Uh, never steward training because I've yeah. never processed agreements. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know.
0: Well, it, I I'm glad you talked about that, Jack, because it seems like a lot of those experiences uh helped inform and and shape a, a lot of this uh, the book that we're talking about today. And uh, I'd like to start with with your title actually. There's two parts. the The main title is "Bridging the Divide," and then there's the subtitle "Working Class Culture in a Middle Class Society." So can you? can you tell listeners like what is the question that you're you're asking in this book and uh what are some of the the big themes that you're looking to explore in here
1: yeah I um I'm not actually asking any questions I'm uh answering them <laughs> you know I'm presenting my view of that American society is composed of of two class cultures that are ordinarily not recognized as such. Um, professional middle-class culture emphasizes, and th- and this is the vast majority of people are in one, of, one or two of these cultures. Uh, professional middle-class culture emphasizes aspiration, achievement, becoming, and has a very flexible sense of self. Working-class culture, according to me, um, emphasizes character, authenticity, and belonging. Uh, working class culture has a more solidaristic sense. They're anti-status. That, that culture tends to reinforce a, a being anti-status, mm-hmm. uh, whereas middle class culture is very much concerned with uh, status. Uh, and there's a variety of other uh, other differences. The main theme of the book, and the Bridging the Divide title is was not mine, but I think it's appropriate, uh, is that, each of these cultures, as I've just described them, are good cultures, uh, and they're nudging us or providing guidelines or pressures on us to act or to expect different things. Yeah, uh, Both of them are good, and my, my view is they need to be in co- contact with each other uh, because each has strengths and weaknesses that, given those two co- different cultural emphases, they can... Uh, uh, offset each other's strengths and weaknesses Mm
0: -hmm. now go on a good
1: part of that yeah a, a good part of that is the reason it isn't recognized that there are two class cultures is that the professional middle class culture is taken as mainstream in the american culture and that culture looks at working class culture and thinks there's no culture there at all or there's a deficit uh, and and define working class culture by what it lacks in comparison to, to middle class culture, so it sets up a series of conflicts and uh, that that ignorance in professional middle class culture of an alternative culture, a different culture than their own, um, our own, um, it sets up a series of, of conflicts, but also of uh, potential complementary complementarities.
0: Yeah. So yeah, Jack. That reminds me of this this uh, you know famous quote. I, I heard a historian once uh, you know say that I'm paraphrasing here, but but writing about culture is like trying to nail jelly to a wall. And uh, you, know, can, you know, so you're talking about class culture. Could you talk about um, for you? How do you? What factors go into working class? Uh, versus middle class? Like, are you talking about wealth, income, occupation? Uh, you know, what factors uh, inform, you know, how how we think about class and v- how classes look at each other? The,
1: the, the way I define class is by occupation, by the relationship to the means of production. When I'm talking about culture, however, and, and I don't think that it lines up perfectly with what your occupation is. Mm-hmm. Lots of different things influence our class cultures. But uh, when I'm talking about culture, I'm talking about something that's outside the individual and yet has been internalized in part or in whole by yeah. by individuals. So I'm trying to describe, the jelly I'm trying to describe is um, the kinds of pressures guidelines, expectations uh, that our culture uh, around us uh, uh, pressures guides uh, and nudges us in one direction rather than rather than another. Yeah uh, sure. so it's about priorities. And so, I you know individuals, we all process whatever culture we're brought up in we react to that differently. Some mm-hmm. of us rebel, some of us com- completely accept it, some, you know, pick some parts and not other parts. Uh, and then other experiences as you grow older, uh, of course, mesh and, cha- and change that.
0: Yeah, actually, you know, Jack, you mentioned, uh, I think you said pressures, guides and guidelines. And uh, a concept that you mentioned early on, I think, in your introduction is this idea of mediocrity and when i first read that 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 actually sort of hit me in the gut because i think uh for some people you know that that's a that's a word that for some people it's it's not something that they would want to be described as but but you make the argument but hey mediocrity is is okay but it goes to this um um it's part of the difference or it helps set up the differences between uh, the different classes. Could you uh, elaborate on, on what you mean by mediocrity and also where did this idea come from?
1: Oh, that's a lot. Uh, one, I, I lead the book with an introduction It's titled Achieving Mediocrity. And part of that is um, based on my own experience. I think I achieved mediocrity and I'm damn proud of that. Um. Uh, but it's kind of a smart ass uh, poke at professional middle class culture because if you're mediocre, that mean the actual word means you're okay, you're adequate, uh, you're average, maybe even a little above average. You're good, but you're not excellent, you're mediocre. and. The poke at, at middle class culture is this striving to be excellent, which is to excel others, um, to be outstanding. Um, that's part of middle class culture that I don't find very attractive.
0: Yeah.
1: Working class culture, on the other hand, the aspiration is more often to be good and to be a good person, but to be good at this or good at that not to necessarily excel somebody else or to be outstanding. And some parts of the the culture actually have sanctions. Working class culture have sanctions against being a show off and, you know, uh, thinking you're better than, than other people. Um, so that's what I was trying to get at. But the other thing is that then I discovered that both in the American Revolution and the French Revolution, the word mediocrity was used to mean the common mass of humanity and that society should be organized around benefiting the common mass of of, medi- uh, of, of mediocrity uh, benjamin franklin talks about it the jacobins talk about it in 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 france um, and so i take i try to turn it around and see how <clears throat> in working class culture There's a value to being common, ordinary, regular. Um, You know, we'll say, oh, he's a regular guy. Well, that's a good thing to be, you know, but that's the same thing as mediocrity. So it's in in a middle class uh, setting. Um, So that's what I try to begin with. Um, And part of that, when I say I've achieved mediocrity, um, part of it is, you know, I've advanced, I've uh, moved up. Uh, in the the standard uh, hierarchy, <clears throat> but I've also maintained a certain common uh, touch, <laughs> and that's mediocrity. They, you know, that's that commonness and that valuing commonness that uh, I'm after in work. And in, 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 uh, it, it resides in working class culture, but it is not absent in a lot of middle class culture as
0: uh, as well. Okay. Uh, so Jack I want to sort of uh, you know we talked about the introduction briefly now I want to talk about part one or the the first four chapters of your book and in here you write about uh, the glorious 30 and I was wondering and uh, you know could you talk about this and why why this period is so important because at one point uh, on page 22, you say you actually have you know nostalgia for this period and, and you know you elaborate on on what that means and uh, you know what are the takeaways of this like what what is the glorious 30 and what why is it so important today?
1: Okay, that I man I took four chapters <laughs> to do this. It's hard for me to to sum up, but I want to start with a negative. What I'm not nostalgic for is a time when white men ruled, when things were more difficult for women and blacks and gays. And um, that's not what I'm nostalgic for. But I'm, and, and I'm not nostalgic for the 50s. I'm nostalgic for the whole period from 1945 to 1975. That's the 30 years. And what happened during that period that not only am I nostalgic for, I think everybody should be nostalgic for is that real? the single most important thing that happened is real wages for production and non-supervisory workers, also for others, but for production and non-supervisory workers, increased on average 2% a year. And they doubled from 1947 to 1972 or something like that. Doubled. That is, they doubled the average standard of living. And during that time, the bottom 20%, of income earners uh, increased at a, for households, increased at a faster rate than the top or the second uh, 20%. So that's the core of it. Um, but more importantly, I mean, as a result of that, people's sense of possibility expanded. And I quote this passage from Tocqueville that is about um, once things begin to change, it doesn't satisfy people. Instead, they begin to recognize other injustices. So this 30 years, if you look in American history, this 30 years was a golden age for collective action. Now in the labor movement, we look to the 30s as the the foundation, but what the labor movement gained and how powerful it was, was during that 30 years. And the labor movement inspired the civil rights movement, uh, the women's in indirect ways, uh, the women's movement, gay rights movement, Chicanos, uh, <clears throat> collective action was uh, engaged in and made a bigger difference during that 30 years. And it's based in that material prosperity where people's lives were getting better. And they said, hell, if we if we overcame this injustice, we can overcome this other one. um Third thing is the professional middle class, those jobs, uh, educators particularly, but all kinds of professional and managerial jobs uh, were increasing at that time, um, not paid so much better than uh, production workers are now, but uh, they were easier jobs. They were less dangerous and dirty and all of that. Uh, but the classes, the two class cultures fed and watered each other during that 30 period, 30 year period, which is what the book about culture wants to um, model after. But that model is based on material prosperity. So in the end, my my, my point is, and I have a little bit of a program uh, for how to increase material prosperity, and that will, in fact... Uh, have positive cultural consequences.
0: Yeah, Jack. When I was reading these first four chapters, I, I one. I couldn't help but think of uh, one of your previous books. Uh, I can't remember the year it was published. I think maybe nineteen ninety nine. Uh, Two thousand. Yeah. Two thousand. Uh, your fantastic book called "Striking Steel: Solidarity Remembered," which is uh, thank you. One sort of a, a memoir of your relationship with your dad. But uh, two during uh, one of the most pivotal strikes in U.S. history, the 116-day uh, 1959 steel strike, and uh, I think that your account is, I think, by far still one of the most thorough accounts uh, of that pivotal strike. So i I really want to flag readers if they if they haven't uh, read that yet, you definitely should. Uh, the another thing that I was running through my mind when I was reading these chapters, though, Jack, is um I couldn't help but think of the aftermath and the run up to the 2016 elections when uh you know you couldn't help but open a newspaper or a journal or, or listen to a podcast where uh the the professional uh journalistic class uh was was talking about the uh the white working class and their grievances and and how that played out in a 2016 election and I I want to flag for readers that I, I think the word Trump, uh, the name Trump is mentioned once in the index. You you don't directly talk about that, but I, you know, I can't help but think that did somehow influence you or, or you were interacting with that, responding to it in some ways. And, in, in, uh this, uh, you know, this notion of the white working class, could you comment on that, Jack?
1: You know, I, I've written a fair a deal, a, in articles about the white working class and the uh, how they vote, uh, and that, it did, that is defined as white people with, that who don't have bachelor's degrees. Uh, but I say explicitly in the book that I have nothing to say about the white working class uh-huh. because I'm talking about the culture of the working class as a whole, yeah. 40% of which is black or brown. Mm-hmm um or, or Asian. Um so and I am trying to say th- these cultures cross racial and gender lines, not without differences. There are differences as well, but there's commonalities in the class cultures based in material and material circumstances. Um and I'm I'm often asked um what I think about the the white you know whites without uh, bachelor's degrees voting for Trump in such high numbers um and and that they did that in in 2020 as well as 2016 um a little better and that made a big difference but a little little more democratic but um i think these cultural differences are in the background of the political differences and when progressives just write off the right, white working class as nothing but racist. That's a terrible mistake. It's not like there isn't racism among uh, white working class. And I could tell you about some of my relatives. Um, but it it isn't just that. There is this cultural conflict that working class people see, particularly on television, but on other forms of uh, professional life, going to a hospital, uh, going going to a a, a university, uh, where this professional middle class culture takes itself for granted and doesn't understand that it's just one version of how to to live a life. Uh, And they actually denigrate uh, working class ways. Uh, And that builds resentment across races, you know, the uh, both blacks and Hispanics both heavily uh, Democratic but in the last two elections they've decreased their um, the size of their majority for for Democrats um and that's it's complicated that's complicated by all kinds of factors but I do think the kind of cultural differences I'm talking about and the way middle class culture tends to be Imperial um, and take itself as the one and only good culture, uh, is, is background for some of our political divisions.
0: Yeah, I I can't help but think that also, you know, class composition is constantly changing, and, you know, just a few moments ago, you talked about, uh, you know, during the Glorious 30, uh, professors, university professors were, were part of this middle class, and, and you look at uh, that nowadays, uh, and many professors are, I think listeners uh, of this podcast will, will be aware, uh, are, um, struggling, at holding down multiple jobs as adjunct faculty members and, and doing other jobs just to keep, uh, keep bread on the table. So, uh, it's like you have these two separate cultures, uh, rooted in the classes and the classes, Meanwhile, are constantly changing uh, the the occupational, uh, their basis in occupations and everything like that. Uh, John, I I make a distinction uh, within the professional middle class
1: between elite and uh, standard issue Mm -hmm. uh, uh, professionals. And uh, you can see that in most universities, even the fanciest universities now, between those who have tenure and have very good salaries and very light workloads, if you don't count their research, very light teaching loads, let's say. And then this whole army, army of contingent, either uh, course by course or year by year yeah. faculty yeah. who are paid much less, uh, their job security is less, and that portion of the the faculty, they're organizing. And uh You know, there's many other, most professions now, you can divide between that privileged elite who have very good working conditions and salaries and a uh, proletariat uh, within the professional middle class, educated uh, and still with better incomes than most uh, factory workers and service workers.
0: Yeah. So, Jack, I want to turn now to the, the middle section of your book, and, and you've, you talked about this early on, uh, but I'd like to unpack this a little more, where you write about there's, uh, there's shared class interest between working class people and middle class people, and uh, you used a the phrase they, they, they have a unity as free wage labor. Uh, some, as you just said, are more precarious than others, different occupations and so on. But can you explain how these cultures, uh, as you say, they balance and enrich each other? Um, two different things. It, interest is
1: one thing, and then the cultures balancing uh, and enriching each other is a is an entirely different thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the interests, even elite middle class professionals are wage workers. That is someone, let's say someone's making 140000 dollars a year. That's a really good salary. That puts them in the top 15, 20% for sure. Um but they are still a wage worker. If if that wage is withdrawn, now they'll have more savings than a, a typical worker. Uh but if that wage is withdrawn and they cannot get a job for a year or two, um They're dead. You know, I mean, they're they're in the same uh, situation. So, professional middle class and uh, working class are all free wage workers. Now, there are some free wage workers like LeBron James who make such a good salary that they they can quit anytime uh, they want. And I wish he would. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, so, there is a group you know that, I, that of the middle class stand what i call standard issue professional middle class professionals which is the largest group among professionals and that includes managerial workers in mm-hmm. my my uh, county um that have interests that are the same or at least very similar to working class interests and in among the working class i make a division between settled living and hard living, the hard living are a bigger group than when than, than we define as poor. There are people who are li- literally living paycheck to paycheck. They're at least a third of all of all workers, including uh, professionals. So, but particularly the settled living working class that has a decent income, often it, paycheck to paycheck as well, but. Um, has a decent decent standard of living and the standard issue uh, professional middle class, which has you know, mo- usually a decent standard of living, but even when they don't, they have education, which has uh, more than one kind of benefit. So that there's a, a synonymity of interest between the settled living and the s- standard issue, but that's where the cultural differences make uh, make the biggest difference. Both those groups, have a vested interest as classes, as groups of people, um, in bringing up the bottom because the bottom, um, that the hard living working class, their wages and conditions are what are pulling our wages and conditions down. They're part of uh, part of it. So that's interest. Now the balance. Um, According to me, one culture um, emphasizes authenticity and being true to yourself. The other culture um, emphasizes improving yourself. Yourself is flexible. You can become something different, something better than what you are, and you should try to do that. Well, both of those (laughs) cultures seem to me really, I mean, yeah, you should be authentic and true to yourself, and you should make yourself better. Those two those two cultural emphases need to offset each other. When the middle class sees self as so flexible that you can always be improving yourself and you need to get better and better and better, I mean, it's, it's a tremendous stress and pressure that also with this status sense of excelling, you know, is a major cause of mental health issues in the middle class. Uh, Conversely, working class people with a, this, this uh, worldview about authenticity and being true to yourself, they often limit themselves in what they uh, might, uh, might become and what they can do. And I spent a lot of my life as a, an adult educator trying to convince uh, working, working people, uh, not that you can be anything you want, you know, but that you can do that, the next thing. In labor education, for example, I'm sure this is part of your experience too. Teaching speaking, public speaking, you know, is a tremendously empowering. I think people and people think, you know, people that are really good workplace leaders uh, think, "Oh no, I I, I couldn't speak, uh, uh, you know, in in front of uh, the boss or right? <laughs> you know." And and once they learn some public speaking, it is tremendously empowering. So. That's how I see the two cultures uh, uh, offsetting each other and influencing each other over time. Not one culture becoming the other or some kind of magic synthesis of the two, but just the the influence that interaction has. And there is less and less interaction between working class and middle class people um, because of where we live, how we work, uh, et cetera.
0: Yeah, that, uh, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. And I I think what you just said that, uh, you know, working class people and middle class people are having less and less interactions with each other, really, in terms of of space and geography, Uh, you're hearing more and more about that. Um, You you said something a moment ago about, um, you know, working class ways of life. And the last third of your book has the, these chapters where you you describe, you put these concepts forward, uh, and then you describe them. And I found these uh, some of the most fascinating parts of your book. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could talk about the, these different concepts that you, you come up with. Uh, the first is seeding control to gain control. The second is taking it and living in the moment. And then the third is, is working class realism. Could you talk about these and also, you know, what in your experiences as, as an adult educator, uh, how did that influence, uh, you know, your, your writing about this?
1: I'm gonna do the first one last. Okay. And you mentioned striking steel and, and how much of it was a, a reflection on my father. Uh, who was a steelworker, but he was also a griever and he was a, a union militant uh, who over time got disenchanted with the union, but um, he was just a very pro-union guy who was also very talkative to the point of arrogance. Um, and so as a child, I grew up with getting a lot of union education that I didn't know I was getting. Later, when I taught in labor education, I realized, man, I know a lot about this stuff. You know, i would never been in the, well, not that I had never been in a union, but I'd never been active in a union. I, I was a jan, in graduate school. I was a janitor a cab driver and all these were union jobs in Chicago. But, um, and then as a teacher, um, uh, well, not, let me let me step back. When I went to college initially, and then eventually, particularly when I was at Northwestern for my graduate degree, you know, there was this culture clash, like, um, and that's you know, th- this is very common. Most first generation college students uh, talk about how how they felt out of place and the dumb, and you know, good, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, imposter syndrome, and things like that. Uh, so so I had that. But then when I taught working adults, I, I really recognized how much of my culture, even though I had been assimilated to the middle class, um, was still working class and how much I appreciated it. And my students actually helped me get back to it in some ways, which my wife, who's... Also from a working class background, we were like childhood sweethearts. She's still much more working class than me. She dresses she dresses fancy, but she lives in the moment. She's good at taking it, you know, all the all these uh, aspects of things. Um, so that's that's how I came about it, and it's a combination. And I really recommend this for people in, in thinking about culture: a combination of self reflection and observation of others. Um, uh, and there's a kind of dialectic there that I think for most people, uh, can be pretty rich if they, they think through their own kind of cultural autobiography. Uh, and of course there's ethnicity and gender and all other kinds of things to think about in addition to class, but the class part of it is, uh, very rich and particularly for those of us from working class backgrounds, uh, who become assimilated, uh, in, in the middle class. Now, the three things, are just so much, <laughs> I took three chapters for the and then and I think you're right, this is the most original and contestable part of the book, but the seeding control the gain control, I recognized as a very common um, working class aspect. I recognized it in myself, when I would go into a new situation, I would... Uh, Seed control of the larger situation just by instinct and find that area, that niche where I could control it. Um, And that might be uh, in a workplace, that might be at a dinner party, it might, you know, this is just. uh, And so I think that's a common working class way. And I think it's embedded. The basic idea of ceding control to gain control is embedded in the wage relationship where even as professionals, but particularly as as in working class occupations, we give up our freedom for eight hours a day, do what we're told by and large. um, And in order to have the other 16 hours, eight hours of which we should be sleeping, uh, but we have this uh, free time, which we get a wage for, and that wage, if it, um, you know, that that's the freedom part of life. Mm-hmm. So that working class culture is based around a sense of um, necessity is there, bad things are there, they're always going to be there, Um but you can see you can see control, see control of your day, see control of your life in order to gain control elsewhere. Yeah. When people actually are in the workplace, they do the same thing. They they see control, but they find spaces of autonomy within it. Now, it's a lot harder today with all the monitoring that happens say in an Amazon warehouse or something like that um, than it was, but uh, my my dad would tell stories about how they ran the the steel mill. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I I couldn't help but think of that phrase. I, I think it was from uh, you know Big Bill Haywood. What is it? The manager's brain is under the workman's cap. Like,
1: yeah.
0: uh, who runs the workplace? Is it the workers who who do the work day in day out? They they have the the tacit knowledge, if you will, of of doing things. Or is it the supervisor who ostensibly directs them?
1: Right, and the smart supervisor knows that he's not going to be able to control things, you know, without without getting the cooperation of the of the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's it's this kind of instinctive thing to seek control to gain control. Now that has some uh, negative negative consequences in and I think we can see in the last 20 and 30 years that workers as a whole have seeded more and more and more. And it's not like that's irrational, like they had a menu they do or do not see. You know, they've been under attack. The decline of unions, the just uh, this, this general decline of neoliberal uh, yeah. work, uh, work life. Um, but The culture plays into that in a way that uh, when you see more and more, there's less and less where you can gain uh, gain control. Uh, But but I want to emphasize that it's a valuable seeding control to gain control is a valuable culture when you have sufficient resources, time and money. Uh, in your and those are the key determinants of the material uh, circumstances, and compared paid favorably with middle class culture, which tends to be upset with uh, one bad thing happening, <laughs> and um, not not envisioning that a part of life will be hard and mm-hmm. nasty and dirty and. Uh, you know, and you just you just have to be able to live with that, and that's the next thing. That's taking it. Uh, do you want to intervene here?
0: <laughs> no. Uh If if, uh, if you want to continue, Jack, uh, I um when I was reading these, I I I felt so many light bulbs go off in in my uh, in in my head because I thought, oh my gosh, like that happened in my life. I can remember this from my childhood. I can't think of specific moments but I I had that feeling like this is how I grew up yeah Um, I I saw this play out in my family I uh, and I can't remember if it was in the the seating control to gain control or or this next concept but you also write that these can be grounds for collective action like if, if you're giving as you say, giving yourself over to the employer for eight hours, and and for many workers, it's now ten or twelve or longer. Uh, that also it, it, it can become a basis for for collective action to improve that time.
1: That's right, and that's the uh, uh, the the next concept where I talk about taking it, um, and that's very close to the seating seating control, where in working class upbringing, especially we're taught, we were taught there are bad parts of life you're just gonna have to endure. And one of those is probably work. <laughs> uh, and maybe we feel that way about school, you know, but you you take that part uh, in order to get a, a realm of, of freedom part.
0: Jack, when, um, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, a question just came up and if you, if you wanna address this, after not to interrupt you but yeah how do you see masculinity uh, or ideas of gender playing into that uh, uh of because I when I think of taking it, I think of uh you know grit uh toughness uh other phrases that that I think are so asso- could be associated with this idea of taking it
1: yes uh I actually make a gender distinction on taking it and that is men, talk about it a lot more um, and we'll counsel each other. You just got to take it. You got to take it. I, you know, I'm able to take it that people men will brag about being able to take it. Women do much less of that, but they have the ethic uh, much stronger. Um, and at least the work class women in my life have approach it as there's going to be a lot of shit you have to take. Uh, And sometimes that's from uh, husbands and children and, you know, uh, uh, as well as, as, as employers. Um, And as I point out in the book, there's a downside to that and that getting too acclimated to taking it means that you're not trying to change your circumstances as much as you might. but on the upside of that, when things are improving and you get a broader sense of possibility, even if they're not improving for you, you get this broader sense of what could be pro- possible.
0: Then taking it is a base for moving forward. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, and, that reminds me of the point you made about uh, Tocqueville earlier. Uh, right. You know, During the French Revolution, people's expectations, their sense of the possible got got raised.
1: Right, right. And, and then taking it in a seeding control uh, approach to life, um, you know, that can be very valuable in a way that is uh, harder for a middle-class person who is expecting immediate payoff for mm-hmm. uh, that initial action. Yeah. Not that working-class people aren't hoping for immediate payoff too, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and as an organizer, you know, uh, you don't want to organize people to uh, engage in something that they're going to lose. Right. You know, that doesn't help exist, expand that sense of the possible.
0: No, we want victories, not not uh, not promises that don't materialize. Right. Right. Uh, so your last concept, uh, working class realism, is the one that really struck a chord for me, and I I think it's also really good in driving home, how uh you know working there is a genuine working class culture and it can uh be really good for, for middle class people, particularly on you know dealing with with expectations. And I, I can't remember what particular page, but you have this quote where you say it's not so much you can do anything or you can be whatever you want to be, but you can do this or you can do that. Can can you talk about you know, this idea of working class realism and, and how, you know, it could play out in families? Yeah, i um not sure where to start. <laughs> People like the
1: story that I tell about I'm um, going into the seventh grade, which in the my school system was comparable to being a freshman, because uh, you're going from a small elementary school to this huge junior high school with four grades and um, so I, you know, changed my demeanor and my dress and my haircut. I'm not going to tell you about the haircut, but this is the 1950s. Um, and so I asked my mother, "Am I handsome?" And my mother didn't take very long to think about, it. and she said, "Nah, you're you're just sort of plain, <laughs> but you're okay. <laughs> and for a middle class." You know, I've told this story before and and people will go, like, <laughs> what a terrible thing to say to you, <laughs> you know, just say, you know, you're special and, and, you know, avoid the question or lie and say you are handsome, you know. Uh, but that's an example, I think, of working class realism, the positives of it, because it had helped me adjust myself. You know, I, I was I was figuring I could be a ladies man in the seventh grade. And she's telling me, uh, you might you might want to do sports instead, (laughs) Uh, that that this realism gives you a a limited sense of possibility. And that's the downside of it. But it gives you a more realistic sense of possibilities where there are real limits to what you can can do, given who you are in the situation uh, that you're at
0: and whereas in in say middle class culture there's this you know culture of uh striving of attainment of perfection and for many people who don't get there i, I think as you alluded to earlier that can lead to uh you know serious consequences later in life uh, mental illness depression yeah. anxiety and so on
1: right and you know i haven't known a lot of professional middle class people like this but when i have you know, it's just like they're never comfortable with themselves. They're always, um, uh, you know, the, the people who brag on themselves and say what the what's on their resume. And I did this, and I did that. Uh, and they it, they just they just sort of make me nervous <laughs> to be around them uh, because they they're so uh, what you could call uh, unhappy in their own skin or uncomfortable in their own skin. Uh, And so in each of these, I try to show the value of seeding control, taking it, living in the moments and working class realism, Uh, even though all of them have a downside, just as um, comparable middle class uh, ways of doing things uh, have positives, but they also have downsides. Yeah.
0: So. Jack, as I, you know, I think about your book. I see, I see elements of history, of sociology, and you know, I think in your introduction and in your acknowledgments, you write that this is part of comes out of a community of scholars, of activists involved in something called working class studies. Yeah. And, and in fact, I think you're uh, you're involved with the Working Class Studies Association. Could you talk about what what is Working Class Studies? Where where does it come from?
1: Oh, it 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 came from Youngstown State University in 1995. Um, and it drew on labor studies. One of the founders was John Rousseau, who's a, a labor educator. At Youngstown State, uh, women's studies and um, art and representation um, people. It, so, and it defined initially, and I think it's kept that that sense that we want to talk about actually existing working class people, uh, their lived experience, and come at it in any damn way we want we we find useful. Uh, and in many ways, although uh, many of us are Marxist or Marxist-oriented, working on studies leaned against the kind of uh, rote way that Marxists can talk about the working class without ever having much, if any, experience of it. So we particularly valued... People from working class backgrounds who are academics, that's a group of us, but there's also a group of us who are from middle class backgrounds, sometimes from upper middle class backgrounds, who find themselves teaching at a working class university like Youngstown State, and they're going, the culture uh, clash the other way, Uh, and a general kind of political pro-union left uh, uh, perspective among academics, but it's really a, a mission to let's pay attention to the actually existing working class, let's value our own observation and experience as well as a, the kind of more um, uh, academic study and uh, that
0: we do. Yeah, so Jack, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and I'll just share this with readers, Jack and I have talked about this book before and and in one of our previous discussions, Jack, uh, you said that union. You don't talk about unions in here that much, uh, but you know I'm kind of putting you on the spot right now. Could you talk about what role do unions play in uh, the the formation of these cultures?
1: Oh, what a good question! Wow, <laughs> you are putting me on the spot, John. Uh, let me explain first. I made a really dedicated effort to not talk about the union working class because it's a minority. And and even back in the glory days of unions in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, uh, it was a minority, a large minority, but still. Uh, so I, I wanted to talk about working class culture that wasn't union culture. Uh, and that was hard for me because I'd spent so many years in labor education and uh, union or union-related activism and things. Uh, so so that's why there's not much about unions in the book. And I, I think it's a deficit of the book that it doesn't ans- answer the question that you just asked me. And that is, to what extent did unions um, shape this culture? And for the most part, I think I'm talking you know, before there were unions, after there were unions, because some of this goes back to kind of peasant survival culture mm-hmm. uh, uh, from Europe and from Africa. Uh, but it's it's a good question because the glorious 30 was created by the American labor movement. Yeah. There's no doubt in, in my mind or most uh, historians. And I say in the book that that glorious 30, 45 to 75, was, and nobody has contested this so far, uh, the best 30-year period for any working class anywhere on the earth at any time. Yeah, um, And I, I think you could look at China in the last 30 years and say, well, you know, maybe more people came out of poverty, well, more people did come out of poverty, but they didn't have the kind of freedom and agency right. that the labor movement uh, had during that 30 years.
0: Yeah, what what you just said reminds me of uh, you know this this beautiful quote from your book Striking Steel. I think where uh, you say that for your dad, he divided life into two ways: but life before the union and life after the union. And and as you write about in, in here uh, in bridging a divide, is that this was a, a total transformation in life, and at, at several points. You know, you, you refer to the eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep and eight hours for what we will. Um, so, Jack, I've really enjoyed this and, uh, you know, I I I don't have any other questions, but I'll turn it over to you if, if you have anything that I might have missed in my uh, in my questions. And uh, if not, I'll just leave, uh, you know, end with, you know, what else are you working on or what else interests you nowadays? <laughs> Um, I'm really just working with other writers, uh, other
1: scholars, uh, on their, what they're doing
0: uh-huh.
1: and, um, you know, that's, that's very fulfilling. I don't have, as you and I have talked, there are things I'd like to do with the steel workers or, um, that history from 46 to 59, this completely fascinates me or maybe from 41 to 59, um, I'd like to write about and I've spoken uh some uh, uh about the the radicals, the college student revolutionaries who went into auto and steel and the telephone mm-hmm. company and um uh, how they fared. Uh you know some of them in the Pittsburgh area, they'll remain nameless, but yeah. Uh uh and the, both the impact they had and the kind of uh, admirable lives that they, that they've lived most of them now are like me in their 70s. Uh, but I, I, I'm not very ambitious anymore. I think I've, you know, the Striking Steel and the Bridging Divide book, that's what I had to say. And I, I really feel lucky that uh, I got the
0: opportunity to uh, get it all out on uh, in words and paper. Well, uh these books uh are are anything but mediocre, Jack. They, are, they <laughs> are uh this is an excellent book. Um and I I encourage listeners to to read it. And I really want to thank you for your time today, Jack. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you.